You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Cable news is ripping us apart, dividing the nation, making it impossible to function as a society and to know what is true and what is false. The good news is that they're failing and they know it. That is why we're building something new. Be part of creating a new, better, healthier, and more trustworthy mainstream by becoming a Breaking Points premium member today at breakingpoints.com. Your hard-earned money is going to help us build for the midterms and the upcoming presidential election so we can provide unparalleled coverage of what is sure to be one of the most pivotal moments in American history. So what are you waiting for? Go to breakingpoints.com to help us out. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the show. It is Wednesday, special schedule, obviously. Can't really give you a cheery opening because we've just got such a tragic event happening in Uvalde, Texas. So obviously, we went ahead and scrapped the guest segment just to make sure that we had as much time to go over everything as possible. But uh, that's what we have today, Crystal. Yeah, that's what we're going to start with. Of course, we're also going to cover uh, the primary results, also some big news there, um, some big news on housing, on Trump. Uh, but we do want to start with the horrific mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Um, elementary school, what we know is that 19 children at least were murdered in cold blood, along with two of their teachers. Others are wounded as well. We heard from Governor Abbott yesterday about uh, what we know thus far. Let's go ahead and take a listen. Uh, the shooter was uh, Salvador Romas, uh, an 18-year-old male who resided in Uvalde. Uh, it's believed that he abandoned his vehicle and entered into uh, the Robb Elementary School in Uvalde with, with a handgun, and he may have also had a rifle, but that is not yet confirmed according to my most recent report. Uh, he shot and killed horrifically, incomprehensibly, uh, 14 students uh, and killed a teacher. Uh, Mr. Uh, Romas, the shooter, uh, he is... he. Uh, he himself uh, is deceased uh, and is believed that responding officers killed him. 
So here's what we know thus far. And I do want to warn everybody, first of all, obviously, um, this is extraordinarily horrific event. Um, so those sensitivities always uh, are to be considered. But also, as I've covered a lot of these mass shooting events, the details as we learn more can always shift. Yeah. So just take the reports that are coming out right now immediately in the wake of those events with a grain of salt already, we have seen some key details, including the number killed, including the type of guns used, including the response from law enforcement on the scene, have been moving and shifting. So I just want to put all of that out there. Go ahead and put this first tweet up on the screen. So what we know about the shooter is um, that he apparently, on his 18th birthday or the day after, went out and bought uh, an assault rifle. The very first person that he shot was his grandmother. Now, this tweet says that his grandmother was killed. The reporting I saw is that she uh, is in the hospital. Mm -hmm. She was wounded, but she is still alive, at least at this point. So that is the reporting we know. Then, uh, and let's go ahead and put this next piece up on the screen from the Daily Mail. Then he drives near to this elementary school, crashes his truck. We saw pictures of the the truck sort of crashed into a ditch. Um, the reporting says that law enforcement was engaging him at that point, um, you know, shooting probably between both this murderer and law enforcement. He goes into the school and goes room to room and starts shooting children before ultimately being taken out. In advance of the killing, some of his uh, social media presence has come out, his Instagram profile in particular featured pictures of him with assault rifles, um, also other pictures of guns that uh, he apparently had just purchased on his 18th birthday. One of those, and this is this is bizarre, um, he had tagged a sort of random woman yeah. on Instagram who apparently he had some tangential connection to. And he wrote her a message that said, I got a little secret I want to tell you. Be grateful I tagged you. To which she replied, no, it's just scary, adding, I barely know you, and you tag me in a picture with some guns. So that is what we know at this point. And, of course, this is the deadliest mass school shooting since Sandy Hook. Um, and, you know, the nation, once again, is shocked and in absolute grief coming so shortly, too, on the heels of that horrific shooting we just covered in Buffalo from a racist killer there, Sagar. Yeah, I mean, some of the details here, like you said, it's very unclear. So we already showed you that video of Governor Abbott saying that a handgun was used. That no longer appears to be the case. It appears to be two legally purchased firearms uh, from a licensed dealer on his 18th birthday. Now, again, too, in terms of what happened in the initial moments, I think there needs to be a lot of scrutiny on this. Indeed. Current De Texas Department Public of Safety says that, and this was on CNN last night, said that the shooter shot his way past the school district police officer and then two additional cops from local PD who appeared to be on the scene. So what they're saying is that there were three officers there who had engaged him before he even got into the school. Now, obviously, he had his body armor on, but we don't know what the status of those three officers are. I have a lot of questions about what exactly went on down there. And then even, frankly, Crystal, the circumstances of the killing of Mr. Ramos are also unclear. So the initial reports I saw was that a Border Patrol tactical agent who appeared to be in the city. Who was rushed, in the area. In the area, duty, yeah. off duty, yeah. rushed in there with no backup and is the guy who killed him. 
while there were also other cops on the scene. So there needs to be quite a bit of scrutiny here on the law enforcement response and what exactly happened here. Like you said, I mean, we were talking earlier, like you have three cops. I don't know what's going on um, How, in terms I mean, of the shootout. I'm Look, gonna, we, we cannot second guess what happened. I'm going to reserve judgment, yeah. but you do have to look at this and just go, how the hell did this guy get into a well, school? Well, I think about what happened at Parkland and the Broward County Sheriff's yes. Office and then that guy who clearly, you know, uh, was, I, I'm not, you know, disparaging these people's character. I have no idea currently yet what happened, but that is where a bulk of my attention is also on the social media site. I mean, apparently the grandma is alive. We should have a lot of questions for this woman. If she is the one who he was living with and clearly was a disturbed guy, I mean, in terms of uh, what he was posting on social media, a lot of the reports out there saying that he was bullied for wearing eyeliner and for having a lisp. I mean, you know, these are like kind of classic 18-year-old problems, I guess, in high school, but it's obvious that given his social media presence and others, these things don't happen in a vacuum. And there are probably people around him, of which I also have quite a bit of questions um, in terms of this investigation all unfolds. And obviously, this has ignited a massive conversation in the country around gun control once again. And I do think we owe it to America for, to really give people the facts here, which is that Salvador Ramos was an 18-year-old American citizen. He per the law of the land, was able to go and to purchase these two firearms legally. That is the case. In terms of fixing that, it's a difficult problem to fix because, and we were talking about this, in terms of, look, you can think whatever you want about the Second Amendment, but at least under the current Supreme Court, we have a constitutional right in order to buy, to have a gun. And personally, I think that that is the correct interpretation. But also, you know, we were talking earlier, the current initial response from a lot of celebrities is we need to pass HR 8 and have universal background check. I think universal background check is great. I have absolutely nothing against it. But to explain to people, universal background check, Salvador Ramos did pass a background check. So the background check system for universal background check is simply to apply in the private gun market for private gun sales, right? So HR 8 would not have stopped the shooting. Now let's also talk about assault weapons bans. And this is, again, a very tricky subject, but we did ban assault weapons in this country in 1994, the Brady Bill. Well, the Columbine shooting took place in 1999 while the assault weapons ban was in effect. And I don't want to argue about policy, yeah. right? Well, I, I just think we I, should owe it to people yes. to be so like, what's on the table here here's, and what happened? Here's what yeah. I will say. And um, I would say that my views on guns have somewhat evolved Um over the course of, you know, me being super engaged in politics. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any denying just the bare facts that America has more guns per capita than any country on the planet. Yes, I think 400. We have, that's right, yeah. we have more guns than we have people. That is wildly outside of the norm. And it is not an accident that we also have more gun deaths per people. This idea from the right that, oh, we just need more good guys with guns is dramatically disproved mm. by this situation, but also just on its face. If that was the case, we would have no gun violence because we already have more guns circulating in the population. Now, I think the honest case in favor of lax gun laws is effectively, listen, this is important to our culture. This is part of our way of life. This is something we consider a right. And we are willing to accept the consequences of that. Yeah. I think that is the more honest position of the right because this whole good guys with guns, this is complete nonsense. There are some basic gun control measures that are almost universally supported. Universal background checks being one of them. Closing the gun show, show loophole is another one of them. There are a few others that are sort of universally supported. I think why this debate always crashes into the rocks 
is for a few reasons. Number one, you have a gun lobby that is very well-financed and very well-organized. Number two, you have a minority of the population that is very strongly in favor of lax gun laws. And they are really the only constituency that votes solely based on this issue. Okay, and they are overwhelmingly powerful in Republican primaries. So when you're talking about a state like Texas that is still very much a red state, that faction of voters ends up being extremely powerful. Um, And then the other piece of this, though, that I think is more difficult to be honest about, which is what you're getting to, is that those measures that are on the table in terms of being overwhelmingly politically popular and have some bipartisan support, I think there's skepticism among the public that they would really do that much in terms of curbing these types of mass shooting events. Now, listen, I believe universal background checks, putting some of these barriers and obstacles in place to make it more difficult to curb the sort of casual acquisition of firearms, I think that would likely have the most impact on the suicide rate, on the amount of killings and domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Those gun deaths also matter a lot. And so I don't want to say, oh, oh, it wouldn't matter whatsoever, so who cares? But I think what you're pointing to, and this is something that um, our friend Igor, who runs an organization called Guns Down, and takes a more radical position here is, He even would say from the left, you have to be honest that if you're actually going to do anything about this problem, you're going to have to take more extreme measures. You're going to have to have, like they did in Australia, gun buyback programs where you're actually not just saying, okay, we're not going to sell any more of these types of weapons. You're taking them out of circulation so that you are actively decreasing the number of guns on the street. And the political reality right now is that there is little appetite for those types of more radical measures. And so I think that's what happens is you have on one hand, you have a very organized and well-financed and dedicated political faction that says, we don't want any of this. And on the other hand, you have a broad public that's interested in some reforms, but is not as organized, are not one-issue voters, and are not convinced that these reforms alone would actually solve the problem that we're facing. And at the same time, let's put this New York Times tear sheet up on the screen here. You have the U.S. buying, American citizens buying more guns than ever before. The U.S. is in the middle of a gun buying boom that shows no sign of letting up as the annual number of firearms manufactured has nearly tripled Since the year 2000, we saw this escalate in particular during the pandemic years. I would say this goes hand in glove with the fact that you have people who just, I mean, this is a sign of societal breakdown. Mm -hmm. People don't trust the uh, government to keep them safe. They don't trust institutions to keep them safe. They have fueled by the media and by the worst people in the country, this idea that your friend and your neighbor and the people down the street are out to get you. So you have basic societal social trust break down. And when you see that, you see things like the number of gun purchases skyrocket. Um, So that's the landscape. And all of this happens with the background backdrop of, go ahead and put this next piece up on the screen, the NRA is literally holding their convention in Houston this Friday. At that event will be Greg Abbott, governor of Texas, who you saw speak earlier, Ted Cruz, John Cornyn, Dan Crenshaw, and Donald Trump. I do think it's disgusting the way that the NRA and these politicians stand against even those basic reforms that, while I agree with you, it is unlikely would have stopped this killer, would at least help on the margins to curb some of this gun violence. And, you know, it's it's going to be a disgusting affair to watch how these politicians and how the NRA handles this when they have taken such a 
radical doctrinaire approach to this that is, I have, you know, coming from a family that gun culture is a big thing, that is wildly out of step with where your average responsible gun-owning American actually is. Yeah, let me say this about the gun lobby, which is that they are definitely powerful, but it's also not 1995 anymore. I mean, we had Tim Mack on our show talking about the decline and the complete destruction, really, of the NRA Mm -hmm. as a major political force. And I would just dispute that it's the gun lobby that stands against major— So the gun lobby is against the universal background checks. But, you know, I pulled a lot of the data this morning that we were both looking at. A support for a handgun ban has never been lower— in modern American history than right now. In 1961, 60% of Americans supported it. In 2021, it was 19%. Now, in the last just two years, the 2021 data said that 5 million new people purchased a firearm just in 2021. The estimate is that it's between 5 to 10 million between 2021 and 2022. Go to a gun shop, there's a line out the door. And... You know, I have, I am very hard pressed to say that that doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, David Shore looking at the Pew Research data just in Gallup of 2017, where Democrats had a plus eight identification, said that Republicans in America had a plus four trust advantage whenever it came to guns. And I think that the most salient point of which you pointed to is that Look, we have rising crime rates. We have broader social societal trust. In the last two years, our president literally tried to stay in office, you know, and denied the election results. And also, a bunch of cities burned to the ground. I mean, I think that's probably the best environment to not give up many of your gun rights. I'm not to mention the COVID regime. I mean, looked at what happened in Australia. Yeah, they had gun buybacks. And then they literally threw their citizens in camps with very little civil rights well, recourse. I don't know that those two things are related, but I, I think it's- Well, it's, it ain't going to happen here for a reason. I think and I think that that's an important it thing. It speaks to, well, yeah. again, I think the bare facts of the, the, like, just to make this really simple, there is no denying that the U.S. is an outlier in terms of the number of guns we have and that we are also an outlier in terms of the amount of gun violence that we have. Yes. Those things, there is just no denying that those two things are correlated. The question is, will the measures that are on the table significantly curb that? Again, I think that we should have universal background checks. I think it's insane that we don't. I think, you know, another thing that we've talked about is the fact that some of these shooters, there's no indication that this is the case with this particular individual, although uh, we don't know all the details yet, um, should have been flagged oh, yeah. when they went through their background check process. I mean, look process, at New York, right? But the yeah. databases were not updated. Virginia Tech, the Virginia Tech murderer, same thing, should have been flagged, should not have been able to purchase guns. So, you know, updating the system, closing the gun show loophole that, you know, allows you to purchase them uh, in private sales with no background check whatsoever. Those sorts of things, I don't have any doubt that they will help on the margin. But to your point, there is more going on here than just the fact that we have this overwhelming number of guns circulating in our society. You have a deep societal breakdown a true sickness in our society that has caused us to live in fear. Some of it justified, some of it completely ginned up by the media, caused us to hate each other, um, caused us to, you know, fear our our neighbor and our cousin and our uncle and think that those people are the ones who are out to get you. And, you know, until we deal with those deeper issues, 
it's background checks ain't going to fix it. I guess that's what I will say. I think that's, and I think we all have to be honest about that. And I'll be honest about this too. I support gun rights. And here's the thing. We live in probably the freest Western country on earth. And when you do that, there are significant consequences. And I, you know, that sounds incredibly callous. And I, uh, look, you know, I'm glad Salvador Ramos is dead. I wish he'd been alive so we could have killed him in Texas. That being said, I mean, look, this is the consequence of living in a society where we have 400 million guns. And I think the people who are pro-gun should also say that. I should also say on the NRA, I resigned my NRA membership in 2016 whenever they did not defend Philando Castile because I was really pissed off about that because yeah. he was a legal gun owner and he was shot by a cop even though he didn't do anything yeah, wrong that was, that whatsoever. Was was, yeah, telling. and I'm still very upset about that. Yeah. So, you know, they have their, all, uh, their own problems. And I'm never going to support them uh, after they didn't speak out for him. So I think we should all be clear that the people who support purport to support all of our points of view are full of it. And sadly though, I do think the country's headed once again back into the melee where I don't think there is a lot of honesty. Uh, up here, at least you're gonna see it from the political conversation. And this is sadly, you know, this is what the president decided to go with in his immediate reaction. Let's take a listen. Why are we willing to live with this carnage? Why do we keep letting this happen? Where in God's name is our backbone to have the courage to deal with it and stand up to the lobbies? It's time to turn this pain into action for every parent, for every citizen in this country. We have to make it clear to every elected official in this country. It's time to act. I mean, I don't have any issue with what he's saying there. He did not lay out specific action items. But, like, the Manchin-Toomey legislation, for example, mm-hmm. per- totally popular, supported by a broad swath of Americans. And just because you can't solve every mass shooter issue doesn't mean you should, shouldn't at least try to do things to save some lives on the margins here. So, you know, President Biden there channeling the anger and the grief that I think the nation is feeling and that has— uh, you know, that we've had to live through far, far too many times. And looking around the world and saying, why are we the only nation that routinely suffers through these horrible killings, these horrible shootings at schools where, you know, you can't, as a parent, send your kid to sa- to school and feel like they're going to be, that their safety is going to be provided for. Yeah, that's horrible. Look, I, I agree with you. And, and look, I mean, even on the margins, I would certainly support it. But I'll just explain, which is that we live in a zero-trust society. I mean, given what we've all been through over the last couple of years, I have no idea how you could want to give the government more of an ability in order to infringe upon your ability to protect yourself, especially— uh, after the last, you know, given the political environment and what happened in 2020. So given that, I mean, I just don't think that there's an organic, this is what I mean about the lobby. There are literally 10 million or more Americans, roughly, in the last two years who thought that they were going to have to kill somebody. That's why you buy a gun. I mean, let's be honest, right? Okay, but, yeah. but here's why yeah. the lobby matters. And I've seen how this works mm-hmm. in, you know, West Virginia and Virginia and rural America. So- even the NRA's own membership does not overwhelmingly support their point of view in terms of their extremism with regard to no even a universal background checks, no even a closing the gun show right. loophole. Their own membership does not back those positions. But what they do is they, you know, they rate politicians, they give them a grade, 
And so then for voters who care about, who are into the Second Amendment, into um, into gun rights, they send out little postcards that say, this one's with us and this one's against us. Without getting into those details of like, oh, well, this one's actually, what they're against is a background check, which you actually support. And so that's how they've been able to wield disproportionate power, particularly in Republican primaries. That's how you end up with a situation where even though something like universal background checks is literally supported by like 90% of the population, it doesn't ultimately happen because they are able to so thoroughly control and dominate on that issue. And you can see on the politics of it, I mean, Joe Manchin is from probably the most gun-friendly pro-gun state in the country. I mean, it's probably like West Virginia and Texas. Mm -hmm. Those are probably the two places. And he didn't... He didn't pay any price for not only signing on to, but really leading the charge on this gun reform effort in the wake of Sandy Hook. So the NRA and the extreme position, there's no doubt that is out of step with where the American public is. Now, you do have to balance that with the fact that, yeah, there is a lot of fear. There is a lot of social breakdown in trust that is leading more and more Americans to just buy more and more guns. That has led to, you know, continued stripping of any kind of regulation in these states. In 2021, Texas became the biggest state in the country to let people carry handguns in public without a license or any mandated training. Most people— I think if you poll the country, would say, you should probably at least have some training. Mm-hmm. Like, these are serious, deadly weapons. And the gun owners that I know would agree with the idea that this is not something to be done casually or willy-nilly whatsoever. But even those very narrow basic reforms are put off the table. And that's why I say that the lobby and the money behind it is so important Um, And also, you know, they have an interest in ginning up fears and making people feel like their only answer is uh, a firearm and, you know, that everybody's out to get them. And, of course, they always play up like, oh, the Democrats are going to get your guns, which literally never happens. And we haven't had any significant significant gun legislation in this country federally in years and years. So that's kind of where we are. Yeah, no, it's, oh, God, it's a horrible situation, obviously. And, you know, top of mind is just going to be the Uvalde family, the kids who all were actually killed um, in all of this. And, you know, the national debate around this is very important. I do think that the way that we talk about it is also important, which is that what you're talking about and understanding it. I just think, you know, we have to really understand here where a lot of people are in their lack of trust in all society, government, the media institutions, something that we delve into here every day. And I think a landmark moment really was Beto being like, we're going to take your AR-15. He's like, damn right, we are going to take your AR-15. And, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the shooting, we saw I saw an immense amount of people like Igor, who we talked to on Rising, mm-hmm. who were like, look, we have to be honest here. The only way to solve this is to take away people's guns. And it's like, well, if, if you think that, if you really think that, then you should be honest about your intentions. That's I what think, I always appreciated right. about him. I, I appreciate but, yeah. about him as well, but you know, I don't think a lot of lawmakers and people in the media who, whenever they say common sense, I think we all know exactly what they mean. And sadly, you know, there is that leads to a lack of honesty and extremity, really, on both sides. Because the extremity, I think, of the NRA and of a lot of people, including myself, who are highly skeptical of basically any gun regular, even on ghost guns, I look at it and I'm like, yeah, I don't necessarily believe you. Um, whenever it comes to the ATF and their so-called justifications for why we want to crack down on it. I think a lot of it is about control and a lot of it smells of the agenda of we want to come through and make sure that we always have the ability in order to go after this, given the change in political regime. And also we know that the ultimate goal for a lot of people in it, and I would say that's the median of the people in the gun rights groups or the gun control groups, they genuinely do want to take away 
people's guns. And, you know, it's yeah, intrinsic it to gun culture. There's so little political will and ability yeah. to go further than these basic reforms that that just seems to me extremely conspiratorial. Well, and now, there's another I mean, piece, yeah. there's another piece here that I did want to bring up that I yeah. think is important because for years and years, we weren't even allowed to collect data on like guns and what was out there and where things, yeah, what was, was being Bush sold from where. Yeah. It was banned effectively under uh, the Bush regime, which I think is crazy because at the very least, you should have some transparency about what's going on when you do have this problem of, crime, violence, gun violence, gun deaths being such an epidemic in America. Um, so we just recently, thanks to, uh, a, I believe, an executive order from the Biden administration, got a report. And one of the things that it identified was the fact that, at least in the state of Pennsylvania, you had six relatively small firearms dealers that overwhelmingly supplied the number of guns that ended up being used in crimes. Mm. It was six retailers that sold like, it was like 11,000 guns that ended up being used in crimes. Or why they did that? So the theory is that these are places that um, basically look the other way on straw purchases. Straw purchases when you go in purporting to be the person who's going to buy and own the gun because you can't buy a gun on somebody else's behalf. You have to buy it for yourself so you go through the background check. And so the, um, the thought is that these are places that are basically known to look the other way on straw purchases. These guns get purchased just sold into the black market. I mean, something like cracking down on those retailers and just enforcing the existing law, which already bans straw purchases, but has made, been made impossible by the lack of transparency, that would be one place to start that, again, is it going to solve all our problems? No, but we can't just— That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, we can't just important. say, like, we can't do anything and we just have to yes. accept that kids are going to get murdered in their kindergarten classes. I'm personally not willing to do that, even though I am a moderate. I, I am not mm-hmm. actually a radical on gun control issues. I am a moderate. I grew up in that culture. I understand the mindset. I understand the pieces that you're talking about here. But to me, it seems insane to just say, like, we have to accept it exactly as it is and there's literally nothing we can do. I think uh, landing on this at— enforce the current law seems like a pretty good one in order to say. And that, you know, working against that is eminently ridiculous. I also, you know, I want to say about the shooting, I got a lot of questions about law enforcement. Was he known to Uvalde police? Was he ever flagged uh, by somebody? Which has happened in Buffalo, in uh, Charlotte's, or sorry, in um, the... Charleston church shooting, Dylan Parkland, yeah. uh, you know, just happens to be every once, every single one of these guys was known to law I enforcement just beforehand. Know how the hell he got into this school? Yeah. And also, I mean, I'm not in favor of this idea of, oh, well, let's just arm the teachers. But you know, at least at my kids' schools, the doors are all locked during the really? day. Yeah. So what? what you have to go to the office and get, bu- you know, and right. tell them who you are and get buzzed in. I mean, I live in this little rural county that has almost like no crime and mm-hmm. ne- has never had any major um, issues of this regard. And so I'm su- I'm just, I'm pretty shocked that there wasn't that basic level of, that he was able to just rush into the school. But we don't know all the details yet. And so again, I don't want to cast too harsh a judgment here without knowing those details. But as you said, I do have a lot of questions yeah, about what happened. Really, I just want to say too, Uvalde is such a beautiful part of Texas, such a cool place. Majority, you know, has a lot of history uh, in terms of Amer- one of our former vice presidents is from there. That's where um, Matthew McConaughey is from, right? Matthew McConaughey, Cactus Jack Garner, uh, who was vice president under uh, uh, under FDR. Uh, it's just such good people. So 
Yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and move on here. Let's talk about the primary results. Let's put this up there on the screen. We'll start here with Brian Kemp. So here's what happened last night. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp doesn't just win the GOP primary. He absolutely obliterates David Perdue. 72% of the vote to Perdue's 22% of the vote. And you guys will recall David Perdue famously said, we may not win, but we're not going to lose by 30. Well, he was right. He was actually down by 50 in that race. I mean, there's no other way to describe this except a complete and utter humiliation of David Perdue, who was once a high-ranking member of the United States Senate on the Republican Party, and of Donald Trump. Let's put this up there on the screen. This is a a great Politico report, actually, on how we're going to go effing scorched earth, how Brian Kemp crushed Trump in Georgia. And what they point to is that Kemp is honestly a very savvy politician. Mm -hmm. He never said a goddamn word about Trump. He just did what he had to do. Uh, uh, He moved on from the election. He courted the base on every issue, CRT, voting, all this stuff. Then he actually strategically appointed many of his biggest critics to high office in the state of Georgia. He never really addressed any of Trump's major concerns. And I think the Republican base was said, yeah, we want to move on from 2020. They're like, yeah, I guess we think the election was stolen, but you know, Brian Kemp, he seems like a good guy. And I can't help but come back to this, which is that I love whenever this happens just to show you that people are not automatons. They don't just go, well, Donald Trump said to vote for him, so I'm going to vote for him. People think for themselves. Uh, Americans are smart. They could look at David Perdue and say, this guy is a moron. He literally doesn't want to be governor for any other reason except his own personal vanity. And because of whatever happened in 2020, this guy, Brian Kemp, at least you know, purports to do what we asked him to do. And so we're going to vote for him no matter what Trump has to say. So a massive rebuke of Donald Trump here in terms of how much he can translate his personal political brand to issues which people do not care about. Yeah, I think that's the number one thing you can say. Stop the steal is not enough. Yeah, Um, it's just not. I mean, Listen, I never want to overstate these things mm-hmm. because Donald Trump's endorsement is still the most important and most powerful endorsement Absolutely. in all of politics. There's just no doubt about it. Yep. I mean, you know, he endorsed Vance at kind of the right moment when Vance was already rising was the peaking. polls. That's right. Um, but, you know, he did help him get over the finish line. Um, it appears that he may have given Oz the boost that he needed to get over the finish line. I do also think that um, partly these executive offices are a bit of a different deal than federal legislators. So to your point about Kemp, this guy, I mean, this is a very right-wing guy. He checked the box for the Republican base on literally every issue from guns to mm-hmm. abortion to CRT to um, voting. And I think so, taxes, too. I think he lowered taxes. He lowered taxes. Yeah. Um, and so when it came time for people to vote, they said, okay, that's nice, Donald Trump. You're not real happy with him, but— Listen, we've seen who he is, and we kind of we, we're good with him right now. And so you really see the limit, like the size of the pure stop the steal Donald Trump vote, and it looks to be around twenty percent. I mean, the other one that is really incredible is uh, maybe even more remarkable is Brad Raffensperger, 
who is the Secretary of State, who the only thing that you would ever know this man for is his opposition to Donald Trump yes. and Stop the Steal. I mean, what else do you know a secretary? You don't know a Secretary of State. That's the only thing that they really have to do with. And so Donald Trump has his handpicked candidate, Jody Heiss. This thing in the polling looked like it was going to be very close. Raffensperger not only won, but he won with over 50% of the vote. Also avoiding runoff. Meaning yeah. that he avoids a runoff. To me, that's almost more humiliating mm -hmm. that what, than what happened here with Kemp. Because, yeah, Kemp had other things that he could lean on, other things people knew him for. This was just a pure kind of uh, litmus test of how do you feel about Stop the Steal and Donald Trump. And ultimately, he comes up dramatically short. Trump's endorsements in a couple other governor's races, uh, and I think we're going to talk a little bit more about this later, also failed. Notably in Idaho, he endorsed the lute sitting lieutenant governor against the incumbent governor, and she also came up, I mean, she did very, very poorly in that Republican primary. So, Listen, as I said, the man's endorsement still matters a lot. Jody Heiss wouldn't have even been in the game. David Perdue wouldn't have even been in the game without Donald Trump pumping and supporting these candidates. But ultimately, it's, takes, it's gonna take more than just saying stop the steal over and over again to uh, entice even Republican base voters. And that is a warning sign for him for 2024 because um, he is obsessed with this and almost to the exclusion of everything else. Yeah, and that's why it matters, which is that yeah. if this is his only pet issue on whether you're MAGA or not, or whether you've gone woke, as we'll talk about in a bit, with respect to Mr. Mo <laughs> Brooks, well, voters are gonna say, you know, Donald, it was a long time ago and we've got inflation. Biden is president. We have all sorts of problems in this country. And in that case, we're just going to go ahead and vote with a guy who we kind of agree with. And I personally think that that is a very welcome and good development for this country. I mean, look, Brad Raffensperger and Brian Kemp both obviously did the right thing. And every once in a while, the good guy or, okay, the person who does the right thing and then is attacked explicitly for doing the right thing does pull it off in America. And it's nice to see because what you can see here is that People, even the people, the MAGA faithful, which I think the majority of, here's a, here's a good one to square. GA primary voters voted to keep three politicians in office yesterday. Brian Kemp, Brad Raffensperger, Marjorie Taylor Greene. So even people who vote for Marjorie are willing to say, I'm going to vote for Brian Kemp. I'm going to vote and for Raffensperger. And she won easily, too, by the way. And she also won easily. Yeah. yeah, I know. That was also cope in order to the idea. But my point being here is that even so-called MAGA, faithful, and all those people are not going to follow him down a path that they just do not care about. So as much as they like Trump, as much as they trust Trump, it has to be in an area which aligns already with the things that they care the most about and not a personal vanity project, which ultimately, that's what all Stop the Steal actually is about. True. So let's move on also to Texas, because you and I were following this very closely, and it's really fascinating. Let's put it up there on the screen, which is that Ken Paxton, he was the indicted Texas AG under FBI investigation, we literally. We that, remember? Of course, yeah. for corruption allegation, has defeated George P. Bush, a scion of the Bush family, son of Jeb Bush, in the GOP primary 
for Texas Attorney General. This race I found absolutely fascinating. And there was actually even a chance that George P. could have come close, although the ultimate you know, results didn't really bear that out. Very lopsided. The journal went ahead and wrote this up, which was kind of fascinating, which is that George P. Bush, just put it up there on the screen, please. Uh, it was George P. Bush fights Ken Paxton to win conservative voters in Texas. He was actually attacking Ken Paxton as some sort of secret liberal. But of course, what really <laughs> had Paxton's back is that a lot of Republicans in in, in Texas, they remember the Bush family. Uh, they don't recall it all so nicely in terms of how that all went down and how W gave us a bad name after he became president. And I mean, look, this is a benefit in my opinion. There was a time in Texas politics where the last name Bush really meant something. They even elected the idiot president's son to become the governor because he owned a baseball team. And yet, you know, that faded away, you know, and this is maybe the one benefit that Trump had given uh, people is he destroyed the Bushes and removed them as a scion of the Republican Party, at least in terms of uh, their national aspirations. And I also want to say, too, on George P., this guy is a complete narcissist. Like, even after Trump went after Jeb Bush, his literal father, he was out there trying to get his endorsement, oh, meeting with him. I mean, that, that's disgusting. That's disgusting. Uh, okay, you stand by your, your well, dad. Well, remember what he said What he said some stuff about Jeb's wife, Yeah, too? That's, that's right. His mom. That's literally, literally his mom. His mom uh, and you're like, please, Mr. Trump. Look, something, you, these people have a lot of money. Some things are actually more important than winning national office. Apparently not. Um, and, you <laughs> know, you. you come from my parents or a member of my family, I basically don't care, even if you're in my party, yeah. whether you're going to say something about yeah, it. Yeah, but so, look, at, look at Ted Cruz. Oh, listen, things that I, said about Heidi, it's not too. that these people won't do it. I'm just saying I personally look down on any person who is willing to do I, so. I do want to say, going back yeah. to Georgia, too, I yeah. wonder if part of— Kemp's appeal was actually that he didn't cut himself to Trump. Oh, definitely. You know, yeah, I mean, right. and, and I do think that that matters too in terms of how Republicans position themselves going forward mm-hmm. because it does it does cut into this idea that, oh, you just can't tr- cross Trump whatsoever. You have to be with him on every single stupid last right. insane thing he's doing. Kemp decidedly did not do that. Raffensperger decidedly did not do that in a very, you know, publicly revealed way. And ultimately were able to not just hang on, but win handily. So I'm not sure that all these Republicans that go out of their way to just completely embarrassingly cuck themselves to Trump are ultimately really doing themselves any favors. With regard to this uh, George P. Bush situation, I mean, there's no one to cheer for in this particular race. Like Penn Paxton, Ken Paxton continues to be, he's indicted. (laughs) He's under FBI investigation currently for corruption allegations. He also has been all in on Stop the Steal, joining lawsuits. Yeah, he filed an idiot lawsuit. Yeah, so, I mean, this there's, again, no one to cheer for here. And it is interesting, though, because Jeb was really, Jeb, exclamation point, was really the one that killed the Bush name. Because already, obviously, there was a lot of disenchantment with the legacy of George W. Bush, Trump willing to say things during the 2016 primary that sort of, like, you know, spoke the truth that the base was thinking, but— Nobody had really had the balls Mm -hmm. to say yet. But then the fact that you had up there on stage next to him, this totally like weak, mealy mouth, just perfect emblem of the, you know, rotten husk of the GOP establishment Bush elite standing on stage next to him that he could just thoroughly humiliate 
like on a personal level over and over and over again. That was the dynamic that really ultimately destroyed the Bush name. And so this was the very last gasp, at least as far as I know. George P. Bush is basically the only one who still had real He's the only one, yeah. political potential um, yeah. still hanging out out there. And so this is kind of the final thorough very clear crushing of um, the Bush dynasty, which that part of it I certainly cheer for. Like I said, I, there's no way I can support Ken Baxton, who is like basically bad on every level. Yeah. Well, George, you know, it's time to go back to Kennebunkport. <laughs> yeah, you can't cry okay. too hard for him. He's right. going to be just fine. Guys. Let's move on. Mo Brooks, uh, let's put this one up there on the screen. So this one we talked a little bit about, which was the Alabama Senate GOP. And actually, it looks like it's going to a runoff here because Katie Britt, who was the Trump-endorsed candidate, she was the, what was it, the chief of staff to Senator Richard Shelby, yes, the seat that's that right. they're replacing, uh, garnered 45 percent of the vote. Mo Brooks and Mike Durant splitting the rest of it. Mo coming in 29 percent. Mike Durant at 23. So I don't know, Crystal. I mean, I'm curious what your thoughts are. It's obviously going to go to a runoff. She did come awful close at 45, but clearly there were enough people who voted for Mike Durant who apparently was um, having a kind of a switch off with yes. Mo Brooks. Mm -hmm. There's enough people, uh, clearly over 50, a constituency who might be willing to back Mo Brooks over Katie uh, Katie Britt, which would also be a big rebuke to Trump, given that he went so far as to call Mo Brooks woke uh, for saying we need to move on from the 2020 yeah, election. The, the worst smear possible yeah. of any uh, anyone coming from the right. Yeah, I mean— uh, as you said, it seemed like the two of them, Mo Brooks and Durant, were kind of sharing the same pool of voters. So if you add their totals together, you have 52%. Britt was at 45%. I, I could see him pulling it off. I think so, um, too. Especially, I, I almost feel like uh, during the, this primary, Trump has continued to be outspoken and kind of slamming Mo Brooks. I wonder if he's going to kind of back off at this point, not say a lot about this thing. Maybe that gives Brooks a chance to to rise and and collect not just the votes from Durant, but also eat a little bit into Katie Britt's lead, lead here. I would still say, obviously, because she pulled in so many more voters than he did during the initial primary, that she would certainly be the favorite. But he looked like he was dead. I mean, that's why Trump pulled his endorsement in spite of whatever he had to say about, like, stop the steal mm -hmm. and, oh, he went woke. The real problem was he saw Brooks falling in the polls and it looked like he was going to end up in third place and not even come close to making a runoff. So this is a bit of a comeback for Bo Brooks and, as you said, a bit of a humiliation for Trump. And I also think, look, with the learnings of Georgia and the fact that Trump doesn't appear quite as formidable and scary as he once did. You may also see some more fundraising and, uh, you know, sort of GOP figures rallying to Mo Brooks' side. That could give him some support here as well as he goes into the runoff. The runoff time period, I think, is relatively short. Yeah, it's isn't quite it? short. Uh, I think it's a couple of weeks. I was just actually reading about it. But, you know, whenever you think about what Alabama, it's difficult to say because obviously there is the poll, but she came so close that all she has to do is peel off 6% of Mike Durant voters and then she can go ahead and pull herself right. at mm -hmm. 51 and yep. win the runoff. So if that's the case, then obviously Mo Brooks literally needs almost all of the people who voted for Durant to come to his side. That certainly could happen. I mean, you don't vote for Durant or for Mo Brooks 
unless you're dissatisfied with Katie Britt and generally in a kind of more of an anti-establishment, and that even includes Alabama Republican establishment type Republican. So Mo Brooks had that interesting moment here uh, that we covered on the show about revealing the corruption in the congressional system, and he does seem to have some sort of like appeal on that front in terms of I'm the actual conservative in the race. You have people like Ted Cruz and Jeff Sessions, or sorry, Ted Cruz and uh, Rand Paul coming in and stumping the state for him. So he's got kind of the rabble rousers and in the is Senate. Kind of a, she's kind of the Chamber of Commerce. She's the Mitch McConnell candidate, for and, sure. You know, yeah. I mean, that's not a good thing to be whenever you're in the Alabama Republican primary. But, you know, uh, Tommy Tuberville did destroy Jeff Sessions purely based upon Trump's backing. And Jeff True. So, I mean, he represented that state for what, like 30 years or something like yeah, that? And true. they still kicked him and out. And was the original. Yeah. I mean, he was sort of Trump before he, he made Trump. 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 Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he, the Sessions endorsement was a landmark political event at the time. A lot of people don't even really remember it, but he was a sitting United States senator, not even just a congressman who was like, I, he put on the MAGA hat. You know what I mean? He sent Sessions down to Mexico, I remember, at well, one his point. Politics, yeah. His politics, his political views yeah. were in a lot of ways the kind of roadmap yeah. for what was Trumpism before Trumpism just devolved into conspiracy nonsense. Yeah, before Stop the Steal. Okay, why don't we get to the Democrats? <laughs> okay, so the uh, big race on the Democratic side, another sort of war between the establishment and progressive wings of the party, is Henry Cuellar, sitting incumbent, uh, really you have to call him sort of a conservative Democrat, maybe the most conservative Democrat remaining in the House, versus uh, progressive Jessica Cisneros. This is her second time uh, taking him on. She's made it very close every single time. And this one, still this race has not been called. The very latest, per Steve Kornacki, is that uh, Cuellar leads by 177 votes. That's it. There's still, he says, a very small number of provisional ballots to be counted. And there are several counties that could still have a few uncounted votes, and a recount certainly looms, so NBC is not yet calling the race. Um, what is extraordinary here, Sagar, is if mm-hmm. you look at the map of this district, this district goes from San Antonio down to the border, Yep. and it was very divided in terms of the vote. Overwhelmingly, those border counties, which is Cuellar's base, went for Cuellar. Mm-hmm. Overwhelmingly, the more northern parts of the district that are close to San Antonio went for Cisneros. And those margins hardened from the original primary and from this runoff, which raises the question of whether uh, per- potentially Roe versus Wade and the question of abortion rights sort of hardened the, and, and furthered d- the divides in this district. That's interesting. But it is, it is very interesting. Now, Cuellar, for those of you guys who don't know, not only is he uh, pro-life, uh, he supports, you know, he's opposed to Roe versus Wade, so he's culturally conservative on that issue. He also is the only... Democrat in the House to vote against the PRO Act. So he's also anti-union. He's very close to uh, big oil. He gets a lot of donations from the oil and gas industry, which is kind of like, you know, given where his district is, that makes sense. He also, uh, his office and his home was raided by the FBI, seemingly for some very questionable dealings with um, uh, Azerbaijan. Yeah, it was Azerbaijan. Yeah, he and his wife wife. both. She has some businesses. Yeah. He's, like, been the leader of the Friends of Azerbaijan <laughs> Caucus. As one does. Anyway, and the FBI said they're not going to clear him before Election Day. So that also was looming over this. Now, um, 
there was a lot of big money that came in for Cuellar from the places that we have been seeing big money come in to try to crush progressive candidates, um, in particular DMFI, Democrat Majority for Israel, and what appears to be a sort of aligned super PAC backed by billionaire Reid Hoffman called the mainstream Democrats that came in big for him in the final weeks. Hmm. And if indeed this less than 200 vote margin holds, that may have ultimately been the difference. Now, I do want to say, Sagar, the other thing that's interesting here is um, unions also despised Cuellar. Um, CWA in particular has uh, a beef with him. And so there was also union money that came in on the side of Cisneros. So she did have some backup in terms of independent expenditures in this thing. But it is as close as it possibly could be Right now, it looks like Cuellar is going to be able to narrowly hold on, but pretty extraordinary dynamics here. Oh, yeah. I mean, this part of Texas, I love this part of Texas. Again, so much history. Uh, It really is kind of the last vestiges of, like, the frontier West uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of how it works down there, and you know, in terms of the history. So just to give people context, some of the counties here that we talked a lot about back in 2020, Zapata County and Starr County, these are those South Texas border towns, which either went for Trump in the case of one of them, or came within five points. So Joe Biden only won Star County by about five points over Donald Trump, even though Hillary won that by 58 points. So a bit of a swing in terms of how it worked down there. These are places where there really is kind of an emerging GOP-ish coalition with a lot of these voters. And I'm looking at the map, and it makes total sense the way that you broke it down, which is that the Texas border counties came in for Cuellar at like 70% of the vote. I mean, talking, you know, Star County, 80% Cuellar. Zapata, 88% Cuellar. Jim Hogg County, 78%. G- uh, Jim Webb County, 70%. Duval County, 68%. But then those surrounding more urban areas around San Antonio came in equally hard for Cisneros. Mm-hmm. You know, the one nearest Guadalupe County at 91%. Bexar at 85 at Atasca at 67, and McClellan at 52. That was a little bit more of a split. But that just shows you just how different the dynamics are, even though, and this is what I do love about Texas, this is a majority Hispanic district. Like, most of these people are Hispanic. But culturally, if you live near the city, you're more likely to be liberal. Culturally, if you live down on the border town, you're more of a vaquero Texas mindset. So the type of cultural difference between these two distinct Texans, disproportionately likely to be Hispanic, is just on display in the same way that it's on display across the entire country. And it just splits so hard. I think that's the crazy part. It it really is pretty fascinating. Um, I think also for Cuellar, he's just got very deep roots in those border communities. And so I think, you know, that certainly bolsters him in that area. I was talking to our friend Colin Rojero, Mm -hmm. who's done a lot of of work in that region and um, is one of the better Latino strategists on the Democratic side and was actually doing some of the union uh, Mm -hmm. IEs in this particular race. And I was asking him, you know, kind of tell me about the typical voter in these border counties. And he said they do tend to be obviously more culturally conservative, um, but that's not necessarily, like abortion isn't necessarily the voting issue. Um, But he said, you know, they both are very, are sort of pro-worker rights and pro-labor, but also very business-oriented, very entrepreneurial so it's just a, a different 
cultural dynamic than you're going to find in almost any other part of the country. And then to see the divide in this district so clearly— and that's why, you know, that's why it's so hard to say definitively what's going to happen here also, because if there's another little pocket of voters in the San Antonio suburbs— Yeah, then she wins. Then right. she wins. If the remaining pocket of voters is down in Zapata County mm-hmm. or Star County, that's going to go overwhelmingly for Quayer, and then he's going to have a more clear victory on his hands. So that's why this one is still um, too close to call here, ultimately. But, you know, this is also— Cuellar looks like he's going to pull it off, but it is embarrassing for the Democratic establishment that they go all in with this dude, Nancy Pelosi and Clyburn, and they can barely. I mean, their endorsement just counts for less than nothing. Biden stayed out of this race, uh, even though he's endorsed out there, like he endorsed endorsed, uh, Kurt Schrader. My guess is because Biden's approval rating is so dismal Mm -hmm. in the region that it probably— Probably wouldn't really help Quayar. Might not really be a benefit to him. He may have said, just like, I got this. Why don't you just uh, go do your thing right. in Washington? I'm not sure it would have ultimately been useful, but um, definitely a fascinating race here on oh, this yeah, one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to see uh, more of it. I just, I really do love this part of the country, uh, and it's fun to see it all play out. Okay, let's go ahead and move on. We'll talk about McCormick and Pennsylvania. Another one that's still too close to call. Still too close to call. So let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. We always go with local news whenever we can. GoErie.com. Love those guys. (laughs) David McCormick suing over counting mail ballots in the Pennsylvania Senate race. So this is the dispatch from Harrisonburg, PA. The campaign of McCormick, who is obviously, you know, very close and near recount territory or or in recount territory in the race with Dr. Oz, is suing and asking the state's Commonwealth Court to require counties to promptly count mail-in ballots that lack a required handwritten date on the return envelope. This is a direct return, Crystal, back to 2020, back when there was a lot of consternation amongst senators who were not from Pennsylvania about Pennsylvania election law, mm-hmm. whether such ballots in them should be counted. And it's kind of a significant, uh, I would say, it is the the most legitimate, and I say that in quotes, part of the high IQ Stop the Steal movement. They're like, well, these ballots shouldn't have been counted, all of this. And so the Pennsylvania GOP has made it really one of the cornerstones of they're like, no, we are not going to be allowing these uh, ballots to be counted. Now, McCormick, because he's in the fight of his life, he's like, I don't care. You know, now it's good, even though I still think the election was stolen for this very reason. You're going to go ahead and riddle me that one. But now the Pennsylvania GOP and the RNC are moving against David McCormick for this move. Let's put this up there on the screen because this is pretty important. The RNC is actually intervening against McCormick's campaign by saying that they are they are actually filing and insisting to make sure that these types of ballots are not counted and they're doing that alongside the Pennsylvania GOP both condemning the move I don't know how much legal ground they actually have, given that this is going to uh, rely on the campaign lawsuit, and it ultimately is a decision from the third U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. But in the meantime, those ballots are being set aside. So let's put this up there from Steve Kornacki. The Pennsylvania Secretary of State is telling counties, you should count mail-in ballots that were signed but not dated and set them aside for the time being pending the results of the litigation. But I do think, you know, at the top of the line, Crystal, we don't know necessarily if these ballots will even come in for David McCormick. 
Because right. I think this is a sign of desperation, which is that, look, with the current ones and well, what, you know all the caveats, we still don't know, recount, et cetera, Oz is still basically up by about 1,000 votes. Yeah. And that's where things stand right, right. now. Right. Um, the big blow for McCormick, who uh, overwhelmingly dominated the yeah. mail-in vote, right. um, but didn't do as well on election day, was when some of the late election day ballots were counted in his home turf in Allegheny County, and they actually boosted Oz by, you know, and even a little bit. And he was hoping that that batch of ballots would help to narrow the Mm -hmm. gap and then put him in play with these remaining mail-in ballots and provisional ballots and all those sorts of things. So it's pretty interesting. Um, You know, the court has already ruled that these type of undated ballots should be counted. So if they're consistent with what they've ruled in the past, you would think that McCormick would win on the legal merits. But as you're pointing out, the bigger question here is if there are enough to actually catch him up to Oz, it's looking less likely that that will ultimately be the case here. The other thing that's interesting in this race is Trump was urging Oz, who was, of course, the candidate that he backed, to just go ahead and declare victory. Right. And he didn't do that. McCormick hasn't done that. Good. Um, yeah, yeah, so good. they're actually, you know, I mean, this is legitimate. If you have a legal challenge, right. you, can, you can work that through with the courts. Clearly, the RNC has decided to back the, uh, you know, Oz campaign on, on their side of this issue. But, uh, you know, working out through the courts, that's the way that this is supposed to work in a democracy. There's no like nefarious wrongdoing here, just question over interpretation of the ballots. As I said, I think the courts probably, based on what they've ruled in the past, will fall on the side of McCormick, but we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, let's see how it goes. And uh, I will say it at this, I didn't think I'd praise these gentlemen, but thank you uh, for not doing that <laughs> and for not inflicting a wound upon the country to once again drag them through some sta- stolen election nonsense, which continues to plague us, although was rejected, thankfully, on primary day in the state of Georgia. Finally, okay, let's move on to some more of the deeper problems in American society to housing. Let's put this up there on the screen. This is very significant economic data. U.S. new home sales have plunged to the lowest since the start of the pandemic. Now, the purchases of new single-family homes have fallen by most since 2013, but the median house price continues to set a record as housing inventory is improving. I think there's only one culprit in this entire thing, Crystal, and that is the Federal Reserve. But the reason why that this matters is what did we all find out in 2008? It turns out the housing housing market is deeply financialized, and you can say whatever you want about Dodd-Frank and all of that. It still continues to be massively financialized. Big money, big capital is moving in here. And actually, the current rise in interest rates, while yes, it will slow the housing market, I mean, how much of this is basically going to guarantee that millennials will be a relative permanent rentier class? Mm -hmm. Because if you could not afford a home during the pandemic, which obviously it was crazy, boomers were paying cash and all this stuff, but at least the interest rates were low, we're talking like two to 3%, how the hell are you supposed to do so when the interest rate is at 5%, which it was last week, 5.25%, increase up from three, which is the single highest increase in the mortgage rate 
in modern American history. Yeah. And it's only going to, look, we all know inflation is going to be here now for years. It's for a variety of reasons, supply and all of that. And the only blunt instrument we have is the interest rate. I mean, what are they going to jack it up to? 8%? In that environment, it's not going to be possible. If you were a young person out there and the mortgage rate is 8%, I mean, just say goodbye. Well, like, I mean, you're, you're just, you're like, yeah. screw it either way. Yeah. Because if the housing market continues to be extremely hot, the prices continue to escalate. And you can't afford that. And you can't afford it. If they jack up the interest rates, then just to give you a sense of how much this matters in terms of your monthly mortgage payment, in April, the monthly mortgage payment on the typical home jumped to almost $1,500. That's assuming a 30-year fixed rate mortgage with a 20% down payment. Um, that's up 34% since December and 53% from just a year ago. That's so that's how much it matters. Yeah. These, because it, it sounds like a little. Oh, it's just lifted a couple. It's like percent. no, it's no, no, hundreds of thousands of dollars. This yeah. has increased the monthly mortgage payment by fifty percent. Wow. So it makes a huge difference, and the housing market is actually what the Fed is directly targeting because it is such a large percentage of the economy, and because it is the one thing that um, these mortgage rate, you know, are very sensitive to whatever the Fed rate ultimately is, whereas. You know, the Fed can't do anything about a supply chain crisis mm -hmm. directly, so it's less likely to have as much of an impact there. There's some signs that, um, as opposed to previous times when the Fed has tried to use the uh, li lifting interest rates to cool the housing market, there's some signs that there's a little bit of resistance here. Um, more buyers uh, say that they don't really care what the interest rate is. They've decided they want a home, and that's that. Now, ultimately, when the rubber meets the road and they're looking at their payments, I was they can afford say, it. That might we'll, change things. We'll see. Yeah. But the other piece here is that um, so much of the housing stock is being snatched up by investors and by permanent capital that are less price sensitive, that that also could make it more difficult to cool the hot housing market Corporate and individual investors accounted for 21% of home purchases in December. That's up from 17% just a year earlier. So as we've discussed before, the fact that you have permanent capital coming in, in some cases buying up entire communities en masse and attempting to turn millennials and Zoomers into a permanent renter class has also contributed to just the complete inability of first-time home home buyers to get into this market. And, you know, it matters a lot. You guys know this. I mean, I don't have to explain this to you, but because asset prices have appreciated so rapidly and gone up and up and up in this country, really the only way to get your foot into that sort of stable middle-class life is to be an asset owner, be a homeowner. And for the people who are locked out of that, that puts them on a lifetime path of precarity and never building their own wealth, but always lining the pockets of the landlord class. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can't emphasize that enough, which is that, you know, boomers are flush with cash right now yeah. from the ability to sell their houses, the ability to take loans based upon their assets, on their stock portfolios, which they're now being able to access. I mean, the amount of money that they have relative to most other young people in this country is, is insane and astronomical. Even when you compare how much money they had at that time in their lives versus how much money these, uh, we have at this time in our life. So it's a very tough situation. And the worst, the worst thing is, is what did we all learn from 08? When the housing market flips, it takes, it took what, a decade, 12 years to come back? I mean, if you're on the older side of millennials, you're like 35, 38, something like that. 
I mean, 12 years, like, do you, you're going to be 50 years old. Like, that will mean that you literally will be nearing retirement without being able to buy a house. That's insane. And you'll have two basic depressions slash recessions that happen in your lifetime. And even when we were technically out of the recession in 2012, I mean, you, I don't have to tell everybody who's watching this show, that is really when we started to get hollowed out. 12, 13, 14, 15, you know, the latter parts of the Obama administration. That is when the majority of the money was, the last parts of the money that in manufacturing and more that we even had here was going away. So the current thing that we're looking at a downturn in the housing market, which is the real way only that you're going to be able to build wealth, combined with the decline in retirement portfolios and the stock market and all of that, which again, you may not make money on the way up, but you will lose money on the way down because of the ripple effects in the economy. It's really bad. I, I, be, I even look at retailers. Uh, we're, still, we're looking at Target and Walmart. I mean, they're getting hammered yeah. because people are not spending money anymore. Like yeah. people just don't have disposable cash. And I see it everywhere. Every day I drive home, the gas station is, you know, first it was 450, then it was uh, 475. Now it's up to 510 a gallon even here on the East Coast. Yeah, if you hunt around, you can find some which aren't too bad. You know, in the Bay Area in Menlo Park, California, uh the gas, there's a gas station there was 775 a gallon. I mean, that's crazy town. So, when you consider the just dramatic reduction in disposable income that Americans are experiencing. So on the wage side and then the inability to build wealth, we're looking at a very, very bad picture. Oh, I think over the, la- the next decade, unfortunately. Yeah, I think yeah. that's right. And, um, you know, it'll be very difficult for the Federal Reserve wants to bring us in for a soft landing. That's going to be that's going to be almost impossible because, Absolutely. I mean, the, the tools they have are blunt tools. They are, you know, there's a delayed response to them. So it's it's hard to see any path forward other than pain, which the American people already know. I mean, we've been covering the numbers of 70-plus percent, expecting a recession, saying the economy's on the wrong track, and feeling that they're getting a pay cut every single week. They know. Yeah, they're not stupid. Exactly, exactly. Um, All right, uh, so let's give you a little update on the former president's social media habits here. (laughs) Obviously, he is no longer on Twitter uh, as of today. However, he has apparently— picked up his usage of his own social media platform, Truth Social, which does actually seem to work now, Mm -hmm. at least. So it has that going for it. And it's interesting. So um, let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. It's interesting the things that he's saying over there. You won't be shocked to learn. It's mostly like ranting about Stop the Steal, um, scolding Mo Brooks, sharing a uh, kind of a call for civil war. I'll read you you that one just so you know I'm not kind of taking this uh, out of context. Uh, he shared this from it's an a very account. Weird tweet is a very weird, weird tweet. Um, shared this from an account called Maga King Thanos. Mm-hmm. Thanos. Thanos. Yeah. Is that a Game of Thrones? It's a, thing? no. It's a it's a Marvel thing. Yeah. It's a Marvel thing. Yeah. Okay, listen, guys, I'm totally <laughs> culturally clueless. You should just know that about me. Anyway, um, President of El Salvador apparently said that the most powerful country in the world was falling so fast and something so big and powerful can't be destroyed so quickly unless the enemy comes from within. In this MAGA King account person Mm -hmm. retruthed it, terrible branding, um, and said civil war, which Trump retweeted. Okay. Um, He also (laughs) tweeted at Mo Brooks, can't do that, Mo. 
after Brooks was caught trying to still sort of insinuate that uh, he was endorsed by Trump. Okay. Can't do that, Mo. Yeah. Oh, I understand. Yes. Well, we have some images. Why don't we put that put up there? Put those up on the screen. On the screen. This is exactly how cringe uh, Truth Social looks. Yeah, you can see the weird Civil War call. I don't That's even up in really the top understand. left. Yeah, the top left one. At uh, least on our screen. Yeah. Still talking about Jesse Smollett. Smollett. Yeah, this is about January 6th <laughs> yeah. thing. So he says, free the January 6th political prisoners. Reminder, Jesse Smollett is a free man. Alec Baldwin is a free man. Hunter Biden is a free man. But grandmother who took selfies in the Capitol is in jail without bail. So it gives you a little yeah. window there into what his uh, obsessions continue to be. You've got some uh, ranting about Twitter. He said, Twitter's in big trouble, has lost all credibility, is unlikely to see Elon Musk close his ridiculous deal with him mm. after having learned so much about the massive number of bots and fake accounts, et cetera, et cetera. Well, he doesn't want Elon to buy Twitter because that would mean that his com- entire social media company is irrelevant. Yes, indeed. Here's a fun one from this morning, Crystal. He's trying to spin a bunch of the losses that he suffered in terms of his endorsements. Oh, you got a new one. Yeah, brand new, just as ten, uh, three minutes ago. A very big and successful evening of political endorsements, all wins in tech. Texas, 33 and 0, Arkansas and Alabama. A great new senatorial candidate and others and, in Georgia. And others in Georgia. <laughs> Overall, for the cycle, in quotes, 100 wins, six losses, some of which were not possible to win, and two runoffs. Thank you. Congratulations to all. Okay. That's an interesting way of spinning mm-hmm. uh, one of the most humiliating losses so far uh, in the state of Georgia. Sure, Herschel Walker won, but I mean, it's just so funny, you know, returning to the Brian Kemp thing. He literally said that he only had one goal, which was to defeat Brian Kemp and Liz Cheney. And he was like, I know where I'll be two years from now. I'm going to be here in Georgia campaigning against your governor. Doesn't How did that Cheney work out? Cheney also have a chance to survive? Maybe. Uh, it's, it's unclear. I will say there— uh, Wyoming GOP has very much turned against her. She doesn't have the same level of institutional backing. Yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of, the, the RGA, the Republican Governor's Association actually did back Trump. But I think what is really important about this is, yeah, it's funny and we're amused and we're laughing, but did you hear about it? Not really. And the reason why is he's just become increasingly irrelevant to a lot of our national conversation. There was a time, Crystal, when the Civil War retweet would have been like, you know, how many think pieces, New York Times and MSNBC about that. Everyone was just like, eh, whatever. We got life. Life is moving on. I thought there was a good analysis of kind of the state of Trump influence Mm -hmm. um, from Financial Times. Go ahead and put this up on the screen. They say— this is not an obituary of Donald Trump. He still has a plausible shot at becoming the first ex-president to be reelected since Grover Cleveland in 1892. But politics is about momentum, and the energy behind Trump is dissipating. The bad news for Trump's detractor, detractors is that his MAGA base is not fading. The Kraken lives on. It just no longer shows such deference to the man in Mar-a-Lago. Trump's handicap is that he's obsessed with one issue— that he was cheated by Joe Biden of his rightful election victory in 2020. Most Republican voters share in that belief, which is a litmus test for candidates. Yet, the stolen election myth is their politics starting point, not as be-all and end-all. By confining himself to rigged elections, Trump is forgetting MAGA's animating spirit, which is hatred of America's cultural elites, which I thought was very well said. And I was thinking about this with regards to social media, because on the one hand, Trump being off Twitter has been great for him because mm-hmm. it has allowed the broader public to kind of forget what an obnoxious, like, shit-disturbing asshole he is on a daily basis. And so that has kind of smoothed some of the rough edges, allowed people to look back at his time in office with a little bit of rose-colored glasses and forget just what it was like every single day. 
On the other hand, because his superpower was always being able to control those media cycles, get attention, make all the people that are the most hated people in the country lose their minds on a daily basis, total symbiotic relationship, the loss of that power, I think, has mattered in terms of his the extent of his hold on the Republican base. He's still extremely popular. He's still the overwhelming favorite to win the Republican nomination. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, if he had been continuing to drive news cycles in the same way in the run-up to Georgia, in the run-up to Alabama, in the run-up to these other races, the result might have tilted more in his favor. There may have been more loyalty towards him from the MAGA base and less willingness to kind of track their own, you know, chart their own route. Oh, absolutely. And we see this, too, in the gubernatorial primaries. Put it up there. A Donald Trump-endorsed primary candidate has now lost the gubernatorial for the third week in a row. Herbster lost in Nebraska, Janice McGeehan lost last Tuesday, and David Perdue lose tonight in the state of Georgia. So his hold on everything, look, you know, don't exaggerate and say he has no power, but the power that he once had certainly does not exist. Okay, uh, let's move on to the fun segment. Yes, indeed. So it is now official. Go ahead and put this up on the screen. You guys have been waiting for this. I know you're excited. (laughs) Jen Psaki announces she is thrilled to join the incredible MSNBC family this fall, breaking down the facts and getting to the bottom of what is driving the issues that matter most to people. Sagar in this country has never been more important. Um, Go ahead and put the New York Times tear sheet up on the screen as well. The details here, none of this obviously surprising. She's going to be a uh, host and a commentator. The ho- I think she's going to be hosting a, a streaming show that is expected to launch next year, so not right away. Um, I mean, listen, there's a few things to say about this. this. I mean, overwhelmingly, this continues the trend of yeah. former Biden officials going on and waltzing over to MSNBC, um, a network that, you know, used to— complain about the sort of revolving door State between TV, Fox yeah, News, which was true which yeah. is true and fair but also applies here as well i would be very shocked if i saw jen saki or simone sanders really taking a hard line with regards to any biden administration yep. decisions ultimately and you know they join a sort of predictable chorus of voices from that network defending any and all democratic establishment party actions and that's frankly why their ratings are so bad because it's just boring. It's predictable. It's not interesting. If you wanted to hear what the Biden administration line was, you could go directly to the like Joe Biden Twitter account or to his officially hired uh, hands there in the White House to know it. But they give the game away in the New York Times story. They say that Miss uh, Saki is popular with Democrats and left-leaning voters and that she bears <laughs> resemblance to Rachel Maddow and to Nicole Wallace in the <clears throat> love of its current viewers. Their current viewers love Jen Psaki. And I also I mean, love... I do. I just want to say about that, though, like, I very seriously doubt that that love actually translates, though, into ratings or, like, you know, actual sort of political fault. They love her up there, like, giving it to Peter Doocy Mm -hmm. or whatever. But does she have an actual following? And this is what they get confused about. We've already had Jen Psaki as, this is not her first go-round as political commentator. She was was on CNN CNN previously. And... She was nothing special. No. She wasn't like a fan fave. She didn't have any of those big like viral moments or anything. They certainly didn't see her as a potential future host of a show. So, you know, 
Um, Rachel, for all of her many faults, has a real following of people that show up for her. Will Jen Psaki be the same? I seriously doubt it. And they know that, which is why they're putting her on the streaming channel instead of the real network. I think that that was the other point I was going to make, though, which is that in her streaming debut, and this is what I really love, obviously they're just going to hide how terrible her show is going to do on Peacock, as we've seen with Mady Hassan's show and others. They never tell you what the actual ratings of these things are, and it's because it's all fake. <laughs> and even whenever they do count views, it's probably me scrolling past it, you know, on the Peacock app, trying to get to the Office Superfan episodes or whatever, <laughs> or be like, where's Yellowstone? No, I don't mean MSNBC show to go and try and find it. And you can see in here, she says that her show will be fact-based and thoughtful conversations about the big questions on the minds of the people across the country. You say what you will about Jen Psaki. I think having fact-based and thoughtful conversation is not something that she was known for. I actually will say this. I thought she was okay at her job. You know, not bad. Mm -hmm. She parred, uh, parried and par, you know, was par for the course in terms of pushing people back and, you know, hitting back with the Biden talking points. But being a good paid propagandist is actually probably the opposite of what it should be whenever you're on television. I mean, you and I take a lot of pride in really taking independent stances and really looking into nuance and and trying to say like, okay, like here's what I think and it's based upon this and here's my thought process and we bounce it off of each other. I'm not saying that isn't unique or so that doesn't, uh, I'm not saying that that is present on cable at all, but the, casting yourself as fact-based thoughtful conversation it's the opposite of the truth. That's actually an interesting yeah. point. I do want to say, Mehdi is the only one who says anything that sort of diverges from the Democratic establishment line. I don't think it's an accident that they bury him over there on Peacock. But in nice. terms of Jen Psaki yeah. and Simone Sanders, the being the paid spokesperson to recite the talking points of your boss is actually the polar opposite of the job of— Well, should be. Yeah, it, should be. Yeah, <laughs> of, but in terms of being interesting and, and compelling, helping yeah. people understand the truth of what's going on, it really is a polar opposite skill. So I think I'd be very bad at the White House press secretary job because mm -hmm. I'm not used to having to, like, memorize what I'm supposed to think and what I'm supposed to say and not go into areas that are controversial or uncomfortable. Um, Brianna Joy Gray, and I've talked to her about serving as press secretary, even for Bernie Sanders, someone whose agenda she was like all the way on board with. It was a difficult skill for her because she's so used to yeah, just she was a pundit. actually she's speaking like us. her mind. Yeah, you know? I, I could never do it. And yeah. so it, it, it is a very different skill being the uh, capable Spock versus being the analyst who has something interesting, different, potentially controversial to say that the audience is going to find worthwhile to show up for, so. I can't imagine. I mean, maybe you were actually a candidate, but, well, because you were speaking for yourself, so it's different. Like, I, I'm i me. You know, like, even if there's a, there are a lot of politicians I agree with somewhat, but I could never be like, hey, he's never done a single wrong thing in his life. I'd be like, yeah, that's a good point, you know. Right. <laughs> I don't have it in me. And no one uh, is, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No one is, and, and you're never also going to be 100% aligned with a politician yeah. on every single issue and everything that thing they think and every single way that they want you to say it and spin it. So, that's one skill, being able to sort of imbibe the briefing book and be able to regurgitate it without getting yourself or your boss into trouble. Um, it doesn't make for very interesting or compelling TV. Yeah, That's why terrible oh, when TV. we used to have campaign yeah. representatives oh, on, we're like, God, I don't, it's, like it's this painful. is so boring. This is so yeah. uninteresting. Um, and so the job 
for Jen Psaki previously was basically to be uninteresting. And I have a feeling that she's going to have trouble breaking out of those uninteresting shackles. Yeah, I mean, anytime we would talk to those Trump campaign people, I was like, this is useless. It feels like (laughs) a waste. Just so uh, behind the scenes, the hell really liked those segments. I hated doing them. Um, Yeah. And it's because every once in a while it was interesting. I I will never forget the very last one with Steve Cortez, where we were arguing about whether uh, Trump said very fine people on Charlotte. Um, This was like two days before the election. Which he brought up. Yeah, he brought it up. We didn't bring it up. I didn't, I didn't, listen. Wait, you want to litigate this on the eve of the election? I was like, I remember I asked, I was like, dude, is this really what you want to talk about the day before the election? And the answer is yes. It was a harbinger, by the way, of Stop the Steal, of the most, you know, just being obsessed with Oh, uh, you know, oh, he didn't say it the way that you're, it's like, guys, that's, is that what the election is about? Really? Really? Uh, but apparently, yes, uh, that's what they ended up going with. And actually, you know, look, no disrespect, Steve, or many of the other people, none of these people are particularly good at TV. I think the only one who's fine is Bannon, but, you know, Bannon's always, always kind of been a renegade, uh, war room and all that. He does definitely have his own thought. He's a Trump sycophant in that he never criticizes him, but he also elevates people who go against Trump all of the time, and he has his own legitimate agenda. So that is probably the only one of them, just because he was himself already a media figure long before he ever even went to go work for Trump. He's one of these people that, like, like I think with Mo Brooks, but in some of these races where he feels like Trump made the wrong endorsement. Yeah, and he'll, he'll say it. He'll basically. say it, but it's yeah. always couched in this, like, all these people around right. Trump like are leading him astray. It's like, him. Yeah. he's making his own decisions right. here. Come on. Yeah, like, but it never, it's never Trump's fault. It's always the nefarious I, cabal around Trump that's steering him in the wrong direction. Yeah, okay. I love that one. I'm like, maybe yeah. Trump is just a moron, and he doesn't actually believe anything except uh, having vanity in himself, who occasionally <laughs> does align with a political agenda. But hey, whatever. Yeah. Okay. Indeed. All right, Saga, what are you looking at? Well, to start with, I just want to say, this is not a low IQ conspiracy theory monologue about Davos. (laughs) In fact, I think the dumb conspiracy theories about Davos and the World Economic Forum have done more damage to people who want to legitimately describe how dystopian the Klaus Schwab Great Reset theories and economic agenda really are. This is actually a global elite of billionaires who are planning, not secretly, but in reality, out in the open to all of us, the revealing their ideology in all of its glory. The ideology is masked in similar terms as the Great Reset, grand language, grasping for changing the world, and masked always in responsibility. It takes finesse to see it, to read past it, and to realize how crazy a lot of it really is. And that's what I've been thinking about now, especially over the last day or so, as I saw separate instances that reinforce just how important it is to protect America from these people, and how, when I say things about how in Europe and in Australia, they are only free to a certain extent, and then those people get upset, how this really proves my point. We're going to start with Julia Inman Grant. She is the so-called e-safety commissioner for the country of Australia, speaking on a panel yesterday titled Ushering in a Safer Digital Future. Let's take a listen to what she says about free speech. We are finding ourselves in a place um, where we're, we have increasing polarization everywhere, and everything feels binary when it doesn't need to be. So I think we're going to have to think about a recalibration of a whole range of human rights that are playing out online, you know, from freedom of speech to the freedom to, you know, to be free from on- online violence or the uh, right of data protection. 
recalibration of freedom of speech. Fundamentally, that is the mindset that dominates the entire non-Western world, except here, where they do not have a First Amendment codified into their constitution. Their systems of law say you have freedom of speech within the boundaries that they get to decide. Those that they do get to decide give the government overwhelming power then to police their citizens, to crack down on dissent, to shut down the media, and as we saw in Australia during COVID, literally throw their citizens into camps for testing positive for a virus, which was probably not going to kill you. Watching that mindset pervade the richest and most powerful people in the world at Davos is important because it underscores just how much of the current elite liberal regime in America desperately wants to import European-style thinking and security laws to our shores to get around the First Amendment. A perfect example of that thinking was actually Twitter before Elon Musk became involved. Parag Agarwal, he's the CEO of Twitter, explicitly said before he took the job that his job was, quote, not to be bound by the First Amendment. He said and said that harm reduction, which is a buzzword of these people, was the overall goal of the platform. That is why only days after he took that job as CEO, he imposed a new policy which said that Twitter will not allow the sharing of private media such as images or videos of private individuals without their consent. Now that sounds nice, right? Until you think, wait, under this policy, you could not post the George Floyd video or any police murder. You could not take videos of people who are harassing you or who are doing something untoward and public and then post it without their consent. In other words, you are constrained to be a dissident. They frame it under harm reduction. And the reason this matters is that the Twitter policy is a direct derivative of European-style privacy laws. They went into effect four years ago, which prohibit posting film of someone without their consent. Now, why do I mention this? Because this also came to head at Davos. When Jack Posobiec of Human Events, he was present at Switzerland to attend the conference, presumably to report on what was going on. He was surrounded by police officers. And look, do I agree with everything Jack Posobiec says? No, but that's not the point. He's an American citizen, he has a camera, he runs a media outlet, he's a journalist. Watch here how the Swiss police, an explicitly branded World Economic Forum police, surround him for questioning and then use their privacy laws to try and shield themselves from what they're doing to an American journalist. Excuse me, can I ask you while you're detaining this journalist? Can you put the phone away, please? Uh, can I ask you why you're detaining this journalist? I don't answer your question. Is it uh, not, uh, we're not able to away. report here? Please put Excuse me. Okay. Uh, can I ask you guys yeah, why you can, you're being can you can you yeah can you um, please stop filming? Then we How, can talk. Uh, why do I need to stop filming? Because I ask you to. It's the per, it's my personal right because I don't like to be filmed okay. and it's a right in Switzerland. Um, if I don't want to. But be But can filmed, I ask why he's being detained? Then I won't point the camera at you. Then. There it is. Police can surround an American journalist, someone who comes to ask them. What is the very first thing that Davos cops say? Put the phone away. Stop filming. You have to because of the laws in Switzerland that give them the right to tell you to stop filming when you're the cops. Look, you know I'm not some BLM bleeding heart leftist, but it should be an ironclad right that you can film whatever you damn please during an interaction with the police. And of course, who does that law benefit when you're up against someone who's more powerful than you? It's the cops. 
This is why so-called recalibration of freedom of speech and the whole Davos mindset on what it means to have free speech online is so fundamentally important. They tell us openly what they want to architect the system and definitions in a way that let the powerful be more powerful and rig the rules of the game to guarantee outcomes like you just saw when the cops surround a journalist with no pretext. As I showed you with Twitter, make no mistake, this is coming here. Here is the New York Times, just last month, pushing European-style tech laws on Americans, pushing so-called privacy bills and regulation. And I am not even against regulation, but the regulation I favor is something that guarantees the right of Americans to be free online of censorship for any reason outside of the bounds of First Amendment case law, which has been rigorously debated over the last 200 years. The ones they want are the opposite. They are the laws which you see in Europe and are beloved by the global elite, which allow government regulation at the speech level of what you can and cannot say online. This is how you have a situation, like you literally did in Europe and in Australia during the pandemic, where the government itself decided what could be reported about COVID and what could not. Seeing as many of these tech firms are now global companies, not just U.S. ones, we should all see that they easily, without any passage of law, can import these dystopian future to our shores, even when we've never had a say on it. That is the danger of Davos, why it's important that we also pay attention, because it could be a glimpse into our terrible future. I mean, you watch that clip. How quickly they're like, hey, look, we have a law here, Switzerland. And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Crystal, what are you taking a look at? Well, friends, the downfall began with a devastating political screw-up and a brutally telling gaffe. While Australians were suffering through the worst bushfires in history, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison decided it'd be a perfect time to take a little vacay to Hawaii. So as Australians were watching in horror as their lands and homes burned, and in certain cases fleeing for their lives, Morrison was blissfully watching the waves crash on the beach. Now, once public outrage set in, he then hurried back to his post. But his reappearance kind of only made things worse. Instead of expressing the contrition and regret that voters were presumably looking for, he instead bristled at the criticism and dismissed the concerns, insisting that his absence during the fires was just fine because, quote, I don't hold a hose mate. He also continued his beach going once back in Australia and was caught on camera in this little number. Sorry, everybody. I had to see that pic during my research, so now you... <laughs> also have to suffer with it too. Little did he know that soon enough, voters would send him packing on a very different trip indeed, because Morrison's troubles did not end with the climate crisis-fueled fires and his failed response to them. Far from it. There were also catastrophic issues with vaccine rollouts, leaving some major cities to be locked down for as many as nine months. There were corruption scandals that fueled voter concerns about government integrity. There were belated and tone-deaf responses to sexual harassment and assault scandals. Based on the polls and the voters that I heard interviewed, it all added up to a perception that he was completely disconnected from the issues that voters actually cared about, that he was a chameleon who adopted the persona he thought was most politically advantageous, that he was constantly shifting blame and denying responsibility for critical decisions, and that on a basic human level, he was really just a total jerk. So when election day arrived, voters handed him and his liberal party coalition of moderate, center-right, and right-wing candidates a drubbing at the polls. Now listen. I'm far from an expert on Australian politics, but there were two big trends that jump out of these results that have some echoes both here and around the world. 
So the first thing that is pretty clear is the rise of the independent voter and the downfall of both major parties. It's yet another rejection of the markets over everything politics that have dominated over the past 40 years. Now, Australian politics has basically always been a contest between the center-right liberals and the center-left Labour Party, with few other parties playing anything other than a marginal role. And Labour, the main center-left party, was in fact the major beneficiary of Morris's scandals and his failures. Their man, Anthony Albanese, was sworn in as prime minister on Monday, ending a decade of right-leaning governments. But it was hardly a soaring endorsement of center-left neoliberal governance. Both the Labour and Liberal parties suffered huge declines in their first preference vote totals. You can see here the blue line, that's their traditional center-right party, which has seen a huge decline. The red line is the Labour Party, which somehow managed to win in spite of receiving its lowest ever first preference vote total. Australia uses ranked choice voting, so that's what that's all about. But equally interesting is that bottom black line, which is climbing higher and higher. That line represents the rapidly increasing share going to candidates who are not in either of those major parties. Two parties stood out among those independents. First, a group of women calling themselves the Teals. They ran in wealthy areas, traditionally strong for liberals, and they proved to be extremely successful at appealing to voters who were typically liberal voters, but disappointed with the party on corruption, women's equality, and in particular, climate change. Now, these women had a huge night, even ousting some high-level liberal officials. The other independent party making historic gains was the Greens. They ran on an all-out left populist platform, including bold action on climate, and they notched their best results in history. Not only did they grab their highest ever vote totals, but they could hold as many as five seats in the lower house. Now, that might not sound like much, but it'd actually be the largest minor party stake in Australia since 1949. All of this also sounds a lot like what we just saw in the French election, where the traditional center-right and center-left parties were complete non-starters in the presidential race, and where the left-wing candidate outperformed expectations, nearly making it into the runoff by surprise. It also sounds a bit like how voters are feeling here, frankly, although obviously we don't have a parliamentary system. Both of our major parties and their leaders, Trump and Biden, are held in contempt by most voters. And what's more, an astonishing 58% of voters said they would prefer an independent over Biden or Trump if faced with that particular matchup again. People are done with these dudes. We just regrettably don't have a whole lot of alternatives here. Now, the other big takeaway from Australia, though, is that even with inflation, major foreign policy issues, and disgust with the handling of COVID, the number one issue which proved determinative was climate. Because for Australia, the climate crisis got extremely real and extremely terrifying over the past few years. They suffered through droughts and floods and those massive fires unfolding while Morrison, of course, lounged in Hawaii. According to NBC News, polling in the lead-up showed that 8 out of 10 Australians wanted great climate action from the government. 70% 70 of respondents said they believed climate change was already impacting the country, and environment was the most mentioned issue on social media during the campaign, ahead of the economy and ahead of corruption. Here, Australia is also part of a broader trend. Green parties have been steadily building their vote totals and electoral power across Europe. In fact, Green Party vote share has increased in at least 13 different European countries in their last elections. In the U.S., of course, the picture is a bit different. While the youth-led climate movement has dramatically shifted the contours of our debate, the entrenched two-party system keeps our own Green Party extremely marginal. <laughs> and entrenched corruption and coziness with the oil and gas industry keeps significant climate action perpetually out of reach. But... There is no doubt that that climate movement has risen in importance with groups like Sunrise pushing candidates on climate issues and helping to elect candidates like AOC and like Ed Markey. 
Obviously, what happens in Australia politically, it's ultimately all about Australia. It's the characters, the history, the culture, the Speedos. I simply cannot imagine an American politician surviving the scandal of that bathing attire, but I digress. But when you see trends go global, it is worth taking note of. And in election after election, voters keep sending the message that one way or another, they are done with inaction and disgusted with the status quo. And that was the part that really piqued my interest. Yeah, it's fascinating. Is that amazing. And if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Thank you guys so much for watching. We really appreciate it. Look, it's all, I mean, you talk about dead kids, there's nothing worse. Uh, you know, in the, I'm not saying it's about me, but, you know, waking up, seeing this news, having to bring it to all of you, it's, it's really just the most heart-wrenching part of the job. And always thinking about people, Evaldi, the victims, families, uh, to everybody else out there. Thank you all for supporting us and giving us the flexibility to be able to do the show the best way that we possibly can. Just only one programming note. I know premium subscribers, since we moved over to our new email system, there have been some snafus, but we are basically at the same open rate that we were previously to the switchover. If you have not gotten your email, please reply to the last email that you received from us and we will get you sorted with our customer service team. We're already getting to a better open rate and more importantly, free of MailChimp yes. away from uh, the corporate control. My, uh, so, my parents have been asking yes. me about this every day. We got it. Because they're, the, they're in the camp. Actually, that I've been told that emails. they were personally reached out to by the Supercast. Okay, well, so they better. Shout out <laughs> to the Supercast. Yeah, they're getting a <laughs> real white glove treatment. Um, but yeah. yeah, I think, you know, to, to sum up what is uh, a roller coaster of a, a show, I mean, we live in troubled times. Yeah. We just do. I mean, on every front. And um, we're really grateful to you guys for allowing us to be able to cover the news, whatever is happening, wherever it's happening, um, to build out our programming so that we can have people, you know, covering events on the ground even. And we just want to continue to be able to expand and provide you as um, as the best product that we possibly can. That's ultimately our goal. So thank you for sticking with us through all of us, all of this. Thank you for bearing with us as we switch up the yep. schedule a little bit this week, both because we wanted to be able to cover the primaries, but also primarily because mm -hmm. I wanted to go to my daughter's eighth grade graduation. Um, we love you guys, and we will see you back here tomorrow. See you tomorrow.
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.